How's everybody doing this morning? Um, hey, I am really proud of you guys. I was thinking it might just be me and my family this morning for a little family devotions. But uh, here we are, all of us gathered here together as the family of God. Um, you guys overcame the evil trifecta, the evil trinity of spring break, spring forward, and this non-spring-like winter apocalyptic sort of weather. And uh, gold star for all of you. Absolutely, I know the Lord. I'm not sure how he rewards us in the kingdom of heaven, but I guarantee you, like, today is a good reward for you. I'm glad that you're here. And if you are a guest with us, um, we have been making our way through the book of Romans, a series that we've entitled From Rags to Righteous. And so you can go ahead and turn there with me. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. I'm super pumped about this passage of scripture. But before we actually jump into God's word, I'm also super pumped about March Madness. Anybody college basketball fan out there? We start this Thursday getting to cheer on our favorite team. I've actually been a lifelong Arkansas Razorbacks fan, and for a long time it's been doom and gloom for us. But this year we're actually pretty decent. We did lose yesterday, uh, but uh, we think we're getting like a four or five seed today, and so I'm super pumped about that. But I was listening to a, an interview by Coach Musselman, and they were asking him a basic question like, hey, what changed? Um, the, you guys started out losing like five out of six games at the beginning of the season, but now you've won like 17 out of 20 games. What changed for your team? And he said something that stuck out to me. He said, you know, we've always had the talent, but now they believe. And so every time they step onto the court, they are confident in themselves. And then he concluded with this statement. He says, what we think about ourselves matters a lot. And that's true not for just on the basketball court or uh, in the classroom or in the home or in our spiritual lives. Uh, it's, it's true in all of those places. It's, it's everywhere. What we think about ourselves matters a lot. And so I have a big question for you as we're going to be jumping into God's Word this morning. What do you think about yourself in relationship to God. In other words, how do you think about your relationship with him? What is his relationship to you? What is your relationship to him? Now, if any of you are honest uh, this morning, though, when we experience doubts and fears and insecurity, they can really impact our experience of God and how we think about our relationship to God. And I think in particular, they, they bubble up for us in times of suffering and sin. You know, when we suffer, we, we start to doubt. Is God good? Um, has he forgotten about me? You know, it, it, how could a loving God allow this thing to happen in my life? Or, or why has God not answered a prayer that came from a really good heart? Or on the flip side, what about when we sin? We can make similar sort of judgments, like how could a, a holy God love me? I've done all this evil. How could he forgive me? You guys ever been in that spot? Maybe you're in that spot right now. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's aware of our struggles with sin and suffering and insecurity and fear and doubt and all of those things. And, and I think that's the reason why after he went through chapters five, or excuse me, six and seven, talking about our struggles with sin and suffering, now he moves into chapter eight, which is a chapter all about assurance. In other words, who are we in Christ? 
really important for us to, to grab hold of these truths of what we experience through our union with Christ. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that because we are in Christ, there is absolutely no condemnation for us. Last week, we looked at the fact that for all of us who are believers, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that the very person and presence of God is in our hearts and lives to assure us that we're not alone. And then today, we have this amazing gospel truth that for all those who are in Christ, we are welcomed into the family of God. So J.I. Packer, in his book that I highly commend to you, Knowing God, uh, he says this about this doctrine of adoption. I want to start out with this. He says, you can sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now for some of us, this idea of God as Father is exhilarating, it's exciting, um, as Sinclair Ferguson says, he says, this notion that we are a child of God, that we are his own sons and daughters, is, is the mainspring of all Christian living. But then for others of us, this idea of God as Father can be hard to grasp. Um, we equate our relationship with our Heavenly Father the way we do our earthly Father. So maybe your dad was passive and uninterested. Maybe your dad was angry and controlling. Maybe your dad wasn't even around and you have no relationship with him at all. It's understandable that you may not want to think about God as your father. But here's the idea I want us to grab hold of this morning. Here's what God is inviting us into, to think differently about him as our father, that he is a good father, that he loves us, that he's there for us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we, he wants to be so sure of that reality for us that he sends his very spirit into our hearts to make it so. So in other words, God doesn't want for us just to like know God intellectually as Father. He wants us to know him experientially, relationally, intimately as Father. But here's the deal. I, I can't convince you of this truth I can't make you experience this reality. That has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's no coincidence why chapter 8 is all about the work of the Spirit. He is mentioned 21 times because God wants to make it abundantly clear that one of the primary works of the Spirit is to assure us of these gospel truths. And so I just want to start off by asking him to do his work this morning, that, that you and I, that we would walk out on the basketball court like the hogs, confident that we are going to win, or in this case, we're going to walk through the ups and downs of life, assured by the very presence and promise and work of the Holy Spirit, that we are secure through all ups and downs in life, that we are secure in our relationship with God as Father. Let's pray. God, we just come to you this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that 
you would move in our hearts. Uh, what a sweet gift it is to be gathered together as God's people this morning. I've already sensed your spirit here among us as we cried out, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, make this so for us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to read this passage of scripture and then ask that God would sink it into our hearts. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers, or we could say brothers and sisters, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You guys can take your seats. Today, our sermon is entitled simply Sons and Daughters. And we're going to look at four aspects of being adopted into the family of God this morning. So first, we have a new identity. Um, second, we have a new intimacy. Third, we have a new responsibility. And then last, we have a new destiny. So new identity, new intimacy, new responsibility, new destiny. Okay. First, new identity. We're going to jump in the middle of this passage in verse 14. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then down in verse 16, it says that we have received the Holy Spirit, and as a result, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So remember last week, Pastor Paul, he talked about how the Apostle Paul distinguishes between two groups of people. There are those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. And for this particular group of spirit who are, or group of people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us a new identity that we are sons of God. In other words, I want you to hear this. Not everyone is a child of God. We are all creations of God, but we're not all children of God. We all have unique, intimate, and, excuse me, indescribable worth and value as creations, but not all of us have the privilege of being children. John 1 says this, He, meaning Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So I want you to hear this. You and I, who we were once in darkness. We were once enslaved to sin. We were once orphans and strangers and aliens removed from the presence and the people of God. But then the Holy Spirit came and regenerated our hearts, made our hearts alive so that we could see Christ, believe in Christ, and receive Christ. And when we did, it says that he gave us the right to become children of God. We were adopted into the family of God. We were once orphans, but then we became sons and daughters. We have a completely 
new identity. You and I are now children of God. We are sons of God. Before you ladies get upset about there about being called a son of God, let me explain to you the significance of this. Back in Roman times, the time that Paul was writing this letter, adoption primarily occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir to his estate. And so he would adopt someone as his heir. It could be a person of any age, but it was always a male, since the women in that time didn't have the same rights and responsibilities and privileges as men. And so when this adoption occurred for this adopted son, all these things immediately happened for him. Number one, all of his debts and legal obligations were taken care of. They were paid for. Number two, all ties to his old family were removed. Number three, he received a new name, a new identity. Number four, he instantly became the heir of all that the father had. And then number five, he had an obligation to live in a way that pleased his father. We're going to kind of see these aspects of a Roman adoption breathed out in this passage of scripture this morning. But for right now, the main point I want you to understand here is that at one time, this special privilege was only given to one male of each Roman family. But Paul says, no, that privilege has now been offered to all women and men equally. All of us experience this adoption as sons and daughters. We have a new identity. We are seen as the preeminent firstborn son. In other words, just as God the Father relates to his one and only son, Jesus Christ, now he relates to all of us who believe in Jesus, who are in Christ. We now become sons and daughters. We are given direct access to the Father. We have a new name. We have a new identity. It's amazing. Ann Graham Lotz, who's the daughter of the famous Billy Graham, she shares a personal story I think really illustrates this point. Um, Billy Graham, of course, was the famous evangelist who preached to millions of people all around the world, but his home was in North Carolina. And so many times people would come to his home and they would come up to this long drive and then they would knock on the gate and they would say something like, Billy Graham, let us in. We've you know, we've read your books, we've watched you on TV, we've, we've written to you, we want to come in and talk to you. And every time, Ann Graham's dad would say, I don't know you, uh, you're not a member of my family, and you have made no arrangements to come, now turn back and go home. But then Ann Graham Lotz says that when she would drive up that same driveway, and she would knock on that same gate, and she would say, Daddy, this is Ann, and I've come home. The gate's thrown wide open. She goes inside because her identity is one as a daughter of Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham was a lot of things to a lot of people, evangelist, legend, author, confidant even to presidents. But to Ann, he was her dad. Her identity as daughter changes everything. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at this morning. And we talked a lot about this um, doctrine called justification, that we are declared righteous by God. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But I want you to hear this. Justification is what gets you into the gate. 
Adoption is what gets you on the couch and helps you to enjoy your relationship with your father. That's the highest privilege that the gospel affords to us. Listen to J.I. Packer. He says, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, that is justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father or adoption is far greater. So as judge, God justifies us. He forgives us of all of our sins. He declares us not guilty. But then he does something unbelievable. He steps down from the bench as judge and then gives us a big hug and welcomes us into his family. Listen to Galatians chapter 4 that kind of illustrates this point. I want to make this, want to make this abundantly clear here. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born unto the, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And then here's the, here's the main point. So that, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So being redeemed is great. Like being rescued out of slavery is great, but being adopted is far greater. For those of you who are in Christ, this is your core identity. You are sons and daughters of the King. You're not just forgiven, you are adopted into God's family. And as J.I. Packer says, it comes with it this relationship of closeness and affection and generosity. That's what brings us to point two, a new intimacy. So it's one thing to have a a new identity, but, but God wants something more for us than that. He wants us to experience this reality as sons and daughters. Listen to verse 15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this doctrine of adoption is not just to be known, it's to be experienced. And in this passage, the the Holy Spirit helps us to experience this intimacy with God in, in two ways. First, it says that he helps us to stop relating to God out of fear and dread an inadequacy. And if you guys ever felt insecure in a relationship, whether it's with your earthly father or anyone else, and you just know how awful that feels to feel like you're, you're not sure where that relationship is. And for many of us, we can think of God in that same way. Harsh and controlling or distant and cold or passive and uninvolved. But God says that he's given you a spirit of adoption so that you can experience him differently, not out of fear or dread or inadequacy, but intimacy. The spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. And Paul uses these two words, cry and Abba, because he wants us to grab hold of this idea of that it is a deep, affectionate, personal, authentic, intimate relationship and experience of God's fatherly love. And y'all know what this is like, right? When you were growing up and you were in trouble, what did you do? You'd, you'd cry out, Daddy, Daddy. And for those of you parents out there, you know what a joy and delight it is when you get to hear your kids cry out to you, 
And they run into your arms and they say, Mommy, Daddy. And this brings so much joy for you. And I think in particular, for those of you who are adoptive parents, when that orphan really begins to understand truly and for the first time says, Mommy, Daddy, and runs into your arms and just knows your love and you delight in that, right? It's the same idea with God. He loves to hear the voices of his sons and daughters cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to not be afraid of him any longer, but to run into his arms. There's a second thing that the Holy Spirit also does. He not only enables us to cry out to God, but it says that he also bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, uh, it's not just that we cry out loud to God, but it's that we experience in the depths of our soul the love of God. In Hebrew culture, there was a required to prove something true. There was a requirement of two witnesses. Not just the testimony of one, but the testimony of two. And in the same way, this is what God provides for us. He wants to establish two witnesses to make it abundantly clear that we really grab hold of this truth of God as Father. So the Holy Spirit is one witness, and we are the other. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, I referred to that earlier. Um, it says that God sends his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, so here it says that we cry out, Abba, Father. But in Galatians 4, it says that God sends his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, as well. I mean, there's two witnesses. God is so committed to us experiencing this intimacy with God that he sends his very spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He wants you to know in the depths of your soul that he loves you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he kind of illustrates this experience of God as Father in this way. He says, I want you to imagine a, a dad and a son walking on the beach, and they're walking hand in hand, and they're just enjoying, you know, kind of fellowship with one another. But then all of a sudden, after a little walk, the dad picks up the son. This little boy, he picks him up, and he grabs hold of him. He embraces him. He, he kisses him. He, he tells them, I love you, son. Now, the father's relationship with the son hasn't changed in its status, but it's totally changed in the experience of that relationship for that little boy. He knows in the depths of his soul, oh, God, loves me. My father loves me. That is the experience of adoption as sons and daughters in the spirit is crying out, Abba, Father, to know God personally, to know him intimately, to be confident in our relationship with him. Now, some of you might be asking, I don't even know if I've experienced that before, or I feel distant from God. I doubt that that's true for me. How do I get that experience? How do I get that divine hug from the Lord? Well, in one sense, um, I would say it's a, it's a work of the Spirit. You can't make it happen. But in another sense, you can put yourselves in a position to receive from the Lord these special moments. And Charles Spurgeon gives us this advice. He says, thank him for little grace and ask him for great grace. He has given you hope, ask for faith. 
And when he has given you faith, ask for assurance. And when, he get, when you get assurance, ask for full assurance. And when you have obtained full assurance, ask for enjoyment. And when you have enjoyment, ask for glory itself. And he will surely give it to you in his own appointed season. In essence, Charles Spurgeon says, hey, if you're struggling with intimacy with God, ask for it. Ask for God to make his love real to you this morning. Meditate on the truths of the gospel. Draw near to God. Call out to God. Wait for God. And as you do, trust that he will draw near to you. You are a son. You are a daughter. That is your identity. And now ask for God to enjoy that identity as a son, as a daughter. In fact, let me just pray for you right now in regards to that. I want to pray for you. God, I just ask that you would pour out your spirit upon all who are in this place this morning, that in the depths of their soul, they would know you as father. Lord, for some of them who might be kind of like a prodigal son who's been wandering away from the father, they wouldn't think about the father and say, oh, I've got to serve God. I'm just going to be his servant. I'm going to kind of stay on the, on the outside looking in. I want them to grab hold of this picture that when they come home, you run out to meet them, you grab hold of them, you you bring them into your arms and you say, I love you, bring out the fattened calf. My son, my daughter who was lost has now been found. Holy Spirit, please do that work. This morning I pray in Jesus' name. pray that your start, your heart is just stirred up this morning. And one thing that's really important as we move into point three here is that that son who was lost and who was distant from the Lord, what did he do? He fleed from sin and he ran back to the Father. And that brings us to point three, a new responsibility. So we're not only given a new identity and a new intimacy, we also have a new responsibility as sons and daughters. Let me read it to you. We'll jump back to verse 12. It says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And earlier I said in the Roman world that once you were adopted, you now have a, not just a new identity, you also have a new obligation to represent your father, to carry out his family name. Well, here in the ESV, Paul says that we are debtors. In the NIV, if you have that, it says we are under obligation. In other words, we have a responsibility. Uh, Paul says, so then, or in light of all that I've already said, we are debtors. We have an obligation. We have a new responsibility. But it says here that we're not debtors to the flesh. Okay, in other words, we owe sin nothing. We don't owe sin one penny. After all it's done is brought death and destruction and, and just yuck in our lives. Sin has failed in all of its promises, and so we owe sin nothing, but we owe God everything. Now, we don't pay God back for our adoption. We don't pay God back for our salvation. Our, our salvation, our adoption is free, but what is the Apostle Paul meaning here? He's saying that you are now called to live in gratitude to him and what he's done for you, that you used to be under the dominion of Satan, sin, and death, but now you've been brought into the dominion and the kingdom of the beloved son. 
that you're now loved, you're now adopted, you're now welcomed in, you enjoy all the rights and the privileges as sons and daughters. And God has now given his spirit in and put him into your heart so that you not only know God as father, but also that you would begin to bear the family resemblance, to carry out the family responsibilities of representing him to the world. And one of our responsibilities as a member of the family of God is found in verse 13. It says that by the Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body. That, that, that term, put to death the deeds of the body, it's coined by the Reformers, the mortification of sin. Fancy title. But what it basically means is that these patterns of sin, these patterns of enslavement to all the yuck from before, now you are to put that to death and you live and experience greater freedom in Christ, greater joy in a relationship with God. John Owen, he famously coined this phrase, kind of summarizing this passage. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. He makes it really clear here that it's not just us who does this in our own strength. It's the Spirit of God who leads us in putting to death those deeds of the flesh so we can experience more and more of life with God and we can bear that family resemblance and we can carry out that family responsibility of being light and love to those around us. Um, John Piper explains it this way. He says, The Spirit does not lead by stirring up slavish fear. He leads by stirring up family affection. He does not get you to kill sin by making you a slave who acts out of fear, but by making you a son who acts out of faith and affection. So here's the idea. And this is why I put responsibility after relationship, okay? We enjoy a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We experience His love and affection and His approval. And then it's out of that relationship with God that spills out this longing to honor him, to, to live like him, to bear the family responsibility of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, to no longer live enslaved to our sin, but to live in freedom in Christ. So we don't obey God out of fear, but out of love. And this is what the Spirit of God does for us. He causes us to remember. I want you to remember what Jesus has done for you. I want you to remember how he, put, how he put all the sin to death on the cross. I want you to remember that you are no longer a slave to sin. Now you are a son. You are a daughter. And this is what enables us to fight against that sin. As we are experiencing the love and the life of God, it overflows into every area of life. And what's interesting, though, is that when we... When we cease to experience intimacy with God, when we start feeling distant from God, what happens? We begin to fall back. We begin to go back. I think it's interesting how Paul uses this language of slavery here when he says we're no longer, he says not to give us a spirit of slavery. It kind of harkens back to the Israelites. When they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt, but then what happened is they started to go through the wilderness and they started to doubt God they begin to romanticize Egypt. I just want to go back. And so I want you to remember this. When you forget the grace of God and you're tempted to go towards sin, the first and most important response is remember God. Remember what he's done for you. You're no longer 
a slave to sin. You are free from sin's tyranny. You're placed under the gracious, glorious obligation to carry out the responsibility to honor your father, to, to represent him, to enjoy freedom in him. As one theologian calls it, he calls it the obligation of liberation. And it's amazing. You're not alone in this endeavor to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Spirit of God will help you Remember, this chapter is one of assurance. It's not condemnation. So when you are convicted about your sin, that's evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. It's not to condemn you. It's to assure you that you're a child of God. Listen to the Spirit. He wants to assure you all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So experience that life-giving relationship with God again, and then out of that, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. What thing in your life might be causing distance from you and God? Put that thing to death by the work of the Spirit. Experience intimacy with God. All right, so this amazing doctrine gives us a new identity, a new intimacy, a new responsibility, and last but not least, a new destiny. Verse 17. Paul concludes this section by saying, and if children... Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul kind of saves the best for last, right? So we have this present enjoyment of the benefits of adoption. And at the same time, though, there's still this struggle, right? There's still this suffering. There's still this, this distance sometimes between us and God because of all the yuck that comes crashing down on us. But God says, I want you to be assured of this. You have a future that is secure. You have an inheritance that's coming your way. When God adopts you, he makes you heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. You have a destiny that's assured. Listen to Isaiah 65. I love the way that God describes our destiny. He says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. Isn't that amazing? All the yuck, we won't even remember it. But be glad and rejoice forever, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. You're that delight and joy all the days, for all into eternity. I'll rejoice, meaning God will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. So we have delight and joy towards God. God has delight and joy towards us. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, meaning like there is no more death. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands for there will be a people blessed by the Lord. Always blessing, always favor from God. Before, think of this, before they call, I will answer. You don't have to call out. God's already got it for you. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. If you guys want to know if dogs are in heaven, well, there you go. There's some animals in heaven. Maybe your dog will be there. I don't know. What's the point? All those longings that you have in your soul all become reality in the glory, the kingdom of God. It is yours because you are an heir 
with Christ. All that Christ has is yours. Because Christ inherits it, we will too. Now Paul does add one condition, which is like, eh. <laughs> he says, provided we suffer with him. I'm like, Paul, what are you doing, man? This sounds so good. Well, as we know, Christianity is real about our problems. You and I, yes, we are adopted. We're called to experience this adoption as sons and daughters. We even get to inherit all these things, but that doesn't exempt you and I from suffering. The gospel enables us, though, to face up to the harsh realities of this world rather than denying them. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It's a mystery why God allows suffering. But I want you to notice this little phrase here, though, that says this. It says, provided we suffer with him. We're suffering with Jesus. We're never alone. Jesus has not only gone before us as he suffered and is now glorified, but he's given his very spirit into our hearts so that we can know that we are suffering with Christ and that one day we'll be glorified with Christ. And we can't miss what we're going to look at next week. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the suffering that we endure right now is nothing compared to the glory. And knowing that reality, that destiny, is what sustains us when we go through the ups and downs of life. We are assured. We are confident because we are sons and daughters. And the Holy Spirit comes upon us to give us that intimacy, uh, to give us that liberation, to move away from sin, and to give us confidence that suffering is not the end. It leads to glory. Amen? So I want to close by saying two things real quick. First off, if you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we're honored to have you. I want you to know that Christianity is not about rules. It's not about rituals. It is about a relationship. It's about adoption. And so as you consider the claims of Christ, I want you... <laughs> to see that the heart of Christianity is about a God who adopts unworthy people and calls them his own. And you're invited. You're invited to be a part of this family. The second, for those of you who, and I who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's my great privilege to tell you that you are not just forgiven. You are adopted. And you can now approach God with boldness. You can be confident that you will experience his grace and mercy in your time of need. God cares for you. He protects you. He provides for you. He corrects you even sometimes because he's a loving father. He will not revoke your adoption. You are an heir with Christ. And I, I just I want you to, to, to just pray that the Holy Spirit would make this real in your hearts. Um, I love what J.I. Packer says. He gives us some good advice kind of as we, as we leave today. He says, the immediate message to our hearts is surely this. Do I, as a Christian, understand myself? Do I know my own real identity, my own real destiny? I am a child of God. God is my father. 
Heaven is my home. Every day is one day near. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. That's the apex of the Christian life, to know our adoption as sons and daughters the way that Jesus does. And that Jesus always enjoyed a beautiful, perfect, wonderful relationship with his Father, perfect intimacy, perfect fellowship as the Spirit of God breathed life and love into that relationship with God as Father. Jesus came down on the earth. In fact, at his baptism, what did the Father declare? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit came upon him, resting on him to make it so, to make him assured. But why did Jesus come? He'd always experienced that. He came so that declaration of love and blessing could be declared over you and me. And the way that he purchased that for us is that he was forsaken. The one who had known only the love of his father all of his eternity past, the father had to turn his face away from his son, to pour out anger and wrath against his son for the sins that we committed, so that we would never be forsaken, so that we could be adopted, we could be brought in, and we could be heirs with Christ Jesus, just as he suffered and died, he was resurrected and is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. So we, we will experience some suffering in this life, but we will enter into glory with Christ where there is no doubt that we are his sons and daughters forever and ever. Let's pray.